Hello, it's Thursday, February the 9th, and welcome to Area 45, a Hoover Institution podcast examining the policy avenues available to the 45th President of the United States. I'm Bill Whalen, a Hoover Institution Research Fellow. Joining me in studio today, John Cochran, Hoover Institution Senior Fellow and author of the Grumpy Economist blog. Today's topic, tax reform. John, it's good to see you. It's good to be here. For the record, John Cochran does not look grumpy. How did you come up with the title of The Grumpy Economist? <laughs> uh, my kids came up with the title as I was starting thinking about doing a blog. They noticed my tendency in the morning when reading some op-ed to, to slap down my cup of coffee and, and, and exclaim at how crazy it all was. So they called me, you're the grumpy economist, and it stuck. I love it. Uh, we have breaking news out of Washington this morning uh, on the front of tax reform. Uh, whereas tax reform has appeared to have been a mystery for the past couple of weeks, the question of when Donald Trump would come out with it, if he would in this first year, he told reporters to look for a package in the next two to three weeks. And he described what he will introduce as not just good, not just great, but phenomenal. We have a tr new Trump word now, phenomenal. So apparently tax reform is very much in play, and it may be out as soon as two to three weeks from now. We know Donald Trump ran on the issue. We have people in his orbit who've been floating tidbits of what may or may not be in play. And on the other end of Pennsylvania Avenue, John, we have House Speaker Paul Ryan and his colleagues, uh, certainly with a lot of their own thoughts, a plan of their own. So let's break this podcast into three parts. One being, what will Donald Trump maybe do, what he mentioned in his campaign, what has been tossed out of possibilities? Second, what John Cochran would do if he had the floor and he could call the shots in the tax reform debate? And then thirdly, what we might see in the way of common ground between these two bodies, and then also a tax reform idea which is coming out of the Hoover Institution. So step number one, Donald Trump's agenda. Let me just read through these, John, and feel free to add or subtract anything which, you, which you'd like to here. Donald Trump has proposed the following throughout the course of the 2016 campaign in the way of tax reform. Number one, three individual tax rates, 12%, 25%, 33%. He had earlier suggested rates of 10%, 20%, and 25%, then altered them to conform with the House GOP plan. Second, Trump would raise standard deductions to $15,000 for individuals, $30,000 for married couples. Presently, it's $6,300 for an individual, $12,600 for couples. Under the House GOP plan, it would be $12,000 for singles, $24,000 for married couples. Point three, Trump would keep itemized deductions but cap their total value at $100,000 for singles, $200,000 for joint filers. The House plan would eliminate all itemized deductions except for those for mortgage interest and charitable contributions. Point four, long-term capital gains and dividends, currently taxed at 20%. Their interest is taxed at ordinary income rates up to 39.6%. Trump would largely leave the current investment income tax rates in place. House Republicans want investors to be able to deduct half of their gains, dividends, and interest. It would reduce the top rate of that income to 6%, 12.5%, 16.5%, depending on one's tax bracket. Point five, business income. Corporate tax rate currently is at 35%. Donald Trump wants to lower the rate on all business income to 15%. The House Republicans would cut the corporate tax rate to 20%, lower the tax rate on small businesses and partnerships from 39.6% to 25%. Final point, John, House Republicans want to repeal the estate tax, the alternative minimum tax, and some Obamacare taxes. Trump seems okay with all three, but his plan would tax people's capital gains above a certain amount when they die. There is actually a point of departure here which is worth mentioning. Donald Trump has repeatedly threatened to impose import tariffs. 
House Republicans have suggested instead a, quote, border adjustment tax. Feel free to explain that if you would like. Companies no longer would be able to deduct the cost of their imported goods. The sales of their exports would not be subject to U.S. tax. And one final item, and I would think we should save this for the end of the podcast because I think this is a very interesting question of the politics of the matter. And that was something that you blogged about the other day, John, on Grumpy Economist. And this is the idea of a carbon tax which is supported by a group of economists, White House advisors, cabinet secretaries, including Hoover's own George Schultz. This would be a $40 tax on every metric ton of carbon dioxide released by burning fossil fuels, projected a 200 to $300 billion in revenue. A family of four could expect a $2,000 a year savings if you, if you buy into this. It's interesting politically, and I know you have some thoughts on this. So there we are. We have income taxes, corporate taxes, personal deduction, itemized deductions, capital gains import-export taxes, the carbon taxes, anything we're missing? Oh, my gosh, lots. Uh, once you start fiddling with the tax code, uh, we have thousands and thousands of items that we're missing, everyone's favorite little deduction, credit, special deal, and so forth. Um, <clears throat> I think you, you said some important things right off the bat. First of all, uh, I think in evaluating politics, we pay too much attention to the president and not enough to Congress, especially taxes. Mm-hmm. Uh, the president can do stuff, some stuff by executive orders like, like immigration, but taxes, that comes out of Congress and it comes out of the House. Right. So really the president may propose, um, but those proposals only have the force of, of, well, I guess the president has the right to veto things at the end, but uh, the president has to persuade as well as uh, just propose. Um, Congress has its own ideas. Um, Paul Ryan's Better Way Plan on taxes is quite detailed thoughtful, pretty radical. It's been out there since June. Uh, so I, I would expect uh, in the negotiations here that that is, um, it, it's what we end up with is going to likely be much more like what uh, Paul Ryan has in mind uh, than the administration's proposals. As you also notice, the, the administration proposals are, uh, you went through sort of what you see on campaign websites and right. then it kind of tails off. Right. <laughs> uh, whereas the, the level of detail, uh, and in part, you know, this is not to blame anyone, Paul Ryan's been at this his whole career. Uh, Donald Trump's been at this for about six weeks. Um, so, so I think, so big picture, uh, look, look more to the House plan, I think, for what we're going to end up having. Mm-hmm. Of the things you mentioned, uh, uh, just the, to frame the discussion, um, really the, the way you framed it was essentially fiddling around with the current system. Right. We have an income tax with deductions, and then we're going to, Fiddle with this and fiddle with that. Now, fiddle, I don't mean to demean it. Uh, you know, these are some big changes in rates. But fiddle is not phenomenal. <laughs> but uh, so there's changes in rates within the structure. Uh, what I would, and, and the parts that I'm most excited about in, in the plan and the parts that when, when you invited me later to say King of the Hill is, <laughs> is to, uh, uh, to think about how the fundamentally the structure of how we tax things changes. Because the big problem with American tax system is not that the headline rate, before we get into all our deductions and special exemptions and so forth, is 25% versus 3 to 33% or something of the sort. The, the astounding complexity of the American tax system, uh, which is, I think, leading to a, a widespread feeling by many people that the system is rigged, that rich people don't pay income taxes. Uh, Donald Trump himself is a great example of this, perfectly legally. He apparently hasn't paid income taxes in a long time because of real estate loss deduction offset, blah, right. blah, blah. Uh, so, so the part that excites me the most is, is cleaning up the structure. Though, of course, lowering the rates, rates is helpful. 
Um, but it's really not when you when you look at a business or, or you and me and how much time and effort and distortion of economic activity is is put in by the tax code. Um, it really doesn't come so much from here's a dollar send in 25 percent or 33 percent of it. That comes from all the other junk around the tax code. So right. where do you want to go? I think where we want to go is this. Let's make John Cochran not just the king of the hill or the, <laughs> or the lord of the White House. Let's make you the friggin' baron of Pennsylvania Avenue. You control the entire real estate. You run the White House. You run the Congress. You get to call the shots in tax reform. John, tell us what you would do. Well, I certainly wouldn't do that because I believe in democracy. Uh, <laughs> and if, if I got to do my crazy ideas, heaven help us when the next uh, economist got to do his right. crazy ideas. But you get to drop the plane. You you look at, yes, you no, look at I, the issue of tax reform and you tell me what is best in terms of helping people on tax relief, in terms of helping businesses on tax relief, but also what's going to incentivize and drive the economy. Yeah. Um, and I also want, want to say, but before we get there, um, what you see in these plans is not someone's idea of what I will offer, which is free market nirvana, but their sense of what a political compromise is. Mm -hmm. um, these are all plans put together with many constituencies, and where can we push, where can't we push? I'm sure, I, I would bet Paul Ryan, if asked the same question, would give about the same answer I'm going to give, mm -hmm. but that's not the House tax plan. Why not? Well, he's crafting a deal, and I'm not crafting a deal. But I think it's a mistake for us economists most of my fellow economists ask if a tax plan will immediately say, oh, well, X isn't politically feasible. Well, that's not our job. Our job right. is what does free market nirvana look like? Okay, with that, with that prelude, let's, let's start. Um, there's a basic principle that I think um, it causes problems when we talk about taxes. As an economist, what matters about taxes is the disincentives. We talk about marginal tax rates. If I earn an extra dollar, how much of that dollar do I get to keep? And therefore, what are my incentives to work harder, to start a business, to get the education that helps me to earn a dollar? Mm -hmm. Economists talk a lot about taxes, how much you pay altogether, but they're really, they're making it up because economics really doesn't have that much to say. An ideal tax is one where actually you pay a lot of money because you're funding the government for its needed services, but on the margin, you don't pay a lot of money at all. And that's a hard nut to swallow. Now, politics is all about who pays what Correct. and ignores the margins. <laughs> so my ideal tax are, has you and me potentially paying more money even. Sorry, we got to swallow that. It's not politically attractive to say you're going to pay more money. But the marginal rate, the disincentives are low. So that's, now that is the big philosophy behind the House plan. Uh, by lowering the rates, now if you lower the rates, the government doesn't make any money. Right. So by lowering the rates and getting rid of a lot of the deductions, exemptions, credits, and so forth, then uh, we get an, a tax system that raises the money the government needs without so much economic disincentive. And that, that's why I think simplicity is as important as, as the rates themselves. Simple tax systems with high rates, I gotta grudgingly admit, can often work. Um, now, second big principle. Our government has, uh, so I did answer your question. <laughs> I did say the principle is as lower the rates and increase the base. Mm -hmm. And I would get rid of all deductions, right. um, you know, because, because I want low marginal rates. Even the deduction for charitable contributions that keeps Hoover going. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> I got to believe people will still give money to Hoover because we do good work, even if they're not getting a tax deduction. Thanks for, for the plug. <laughs> um, Okay, now, 
the other problem is that the tax code is trying to do too much. Um, we do three things at the same time. We're trying to raise revenue for the government. We're trying to um, subsidize specific activities like electric cars and windmills. Um, we're trying to transfer income from some people to other people, uh, uh, all at the same time. And that's where things get messy. So uh, what I would like to see is um, let's divide these three issues. One, the tax code should raise revenue for the government at minimal economic dis distortion, period. Two, if the but we, this now I'm going to violate what I just said and, and advocate a political thing. Uh, the problem with that is is that uh, then um, people say, oh, what about my subsidies and so forth? Fine, we will discuss your subsidies, your mortgage interest deduction, all the rest of it. But uh, we will we will do that on budget expenditures. So if you want to, could you play Elizabeth Warren for me for a moment, Elizabeth? Um, sorry, Senator Warren. Um, fine, we're going to have essentially the, the answer to the first question is a pretty much a simple consumption tax, something like a VNT, nothing else, no corporate tax, income tax, estate tax, nothing else. Mm -hmm. That is the, the the cleanest way to raise revenue for the government without economic distortion. Now, you you want uh, subsidies for mortgage interest? Fine, we'll do that. We'll have that separate discussion. We'll subsidize all the stuff you want. Let's do it on budget. If you want a, a subsidy for mortgage interest, uh, what we'll do is we will pass, we will debate a bill mm -hmm. that uh, we will uh, send checks to people according to how much mortgage interest they pay. Richer people get larger checks. Remember, a tax deduction is only valuable if you pay taxes. Right. People in Palo Alto get bigger checks than people in Fresno because the houses cost more. Uh, and um, and people who refinance their mortgages a lot will get bigger checks than people who save up to buy houses. If you think that's a terrible idea, <laughs> maybe we'll do the subsidy differently. I, I also think putting all these subsidies on budget would help a lot in rationalizing what we do. We hide all sorts of taxing and spending. Uh, uh, we tax and spend more than we think we do because it's all hidden there. And then third part, yes, transferring income. We do that through the tax code. Well, let's do the income transfers separately. Uh, so let us uh, let us agree. The tax code will just raise revenue, which which is you know sort of a flat consumption tax. Mm -hmm. Now, poor people, you, you want to use the, you want to use the power of the federal government to give money to poor people. Great, we'll do that too. I would rather that was done by writing them checks on budget, but but we'll we'll talk about that separately. And the, the fourth part of this, and then I'll, then I'll shut up and let you ask a question. Exactly the thing that, that went wrong in your first statement. I think it would be very wise uh, for our government to separate the structure of the tax code from the rates. Right. Uh, because that's where the last one fell apart. The Bull Simpson Commission, they came up with a tax reform that was a good structural reform. It also included the rates. You, you started with 12 percent, 25 percent, 33 percent. And there was a bipartisan agreement this was good. And then the administration said at the last moment, oh, but that's not enough revenue. And then the whole thing blew up. Well. Let's agree to fix the structure of the tax code and leave the rates blank. And then we can separately fight about the rates because the problem is the structure of the tax code. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a good, you know, leaving your opponent room to renegotiate is always a good idea. Let's, we, I think we can come together that we need a clean, honest, transparent, non-distorting tax code. Uh, and then there's a separate argument about higher versus lower rates, higher versus lower government spending. Let's not tie those two things together. Let's fix the thing we can fix with the tax code and then agree that for the next 50 years, 
we're going to be arguing about the rates. And when a Democrat comes in, they're going to raise the rates. And when a Republican comes in, they're going to lower the rates. Right. Fine. But you can you can fix the rates and not at the same time be discussing all of these all the all the horrible complexity of the tax code. So that's in broad brush what I do, and, and I'll let you to ask ask a question if I haven't said something important. Let me throw a concept at you, John. And that is a concept of two bites out of the apple. Two of the last three Republican presidents have engaged in tax reform. Ronald Reagan did, George W. Bush did, H. W. Bush did not in his abbreviated presidency. If you look at the Reagan presidency, he does tax reform in nineteen eighty one. And it's a very quick process if you if you start from the time the bill is introduced in the House to when it lands on Ronald Reagan's desk at his ranch in Santa Barbara. It's about a three-week process in August of uh, 1981. 1986, they go after tax reform again. They do this right before the Senate flips Republican to Democrat shortly before that midterm election. This is a lengthier process. It's actually begun in December of 1985. John, it's not signed until October the 22nd, just before the election, nine months later. Fast forward now to the Bush 43 presidency, two runs of tax reform. The first one in 2001, the tax cuts, the so-called egg tariff, Economic Growth and Tax Relief Reconciliation Act, 2001. And then 2003, the so-called JEG tariff, Jobs and Growth Tax Relief Reconciliation Act of 2003. My God, these are long-winded titles. The question would be, John, could you build the argument that Donald Trump should consider tax reform as just not one but two bites out of the apple? Perhaps in his first year in office, do a shallower run at tax reform, if you will, in terms of rates, in terms of the more politically easier sales, in terms of putting money in people's pockets, in terms of trying to stimulate the economy. Then perhaps in year two, three, or four, make the deeper run at tax reform in terms of going after the larger question of the tax code and these other very thorny issues that will be very hard to do in a short period of time. Well, we're, so we're both going to violate my admonition for economists not to give political advice. Okay. Uh, but, but let's have fun with that. Uh, yes, um, th those are good examples to keep in mind, both their successes and their failures. Um, there, was, uh, there was much more bipartisan consensus back then. I mean, one of the problems now is how to do tax reform right. with a much more polarized Congress, uh, a Congress where many people now call themselves the resistance, which is damn close to the rebellion. Um, so I, I think the answer is, uh, as you said, um, that comprehensive is nice because it gets everyone at the table at once. And truly successful tax reform goes like this. Um, rather than, um, uh, you know, you're going to lose yours and then we fight about it. You're going to use your special deduction and we fight about it. We all sit at the table and say, you're you losing yours, you're losing yours, you're losing yours, I'm losing mine. We all understand we're losing our special deal, but since we see everyone else is losing their special deal, we're going to come out ahead. Uh, I think that's one principle that went well in the 80, in, in both of the Reagan era tax reforms. And it's crucial politically. Um, this, this is where one needs political leadership. We want each person at tax reform, each lobbyist, to be there not for, oh, okay, but I got to keep mine. Each lobbyist has to be there to say, I want to make damn sure he doesn't get his. Right. <laughs> they have to all be invested in the reform. So comprehensive is helpful in that direction. That argues against your piecemeal approach. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, uh, we have this, uh, we have this uh, big polarization. Uh, I would hope that there is enough left that we can do the things we actually agree on and leave the others for another day. And I, I guess I was advocating that in my separate them up. Right. Let's agree on the structure of the tax code with the rates left blank, and then we can 
we can all promise to keep arguing that another day. So that's there's two conflicting political ideas there. I think they both have value, and, and you better bring on your our political scientists to decide uh, which is right. It is important. Um, this tax durable things, Republicans taught us about Obamacare. You need uh, bipartisan buy-in. If right. you do this uh, 51 to 49, the minute President Warren is in, in charge, it's taken she'll right down. take it right, right. back again. Uh, we are, it's a, a difficult moment for bipartisan. That was the secret of the Reagan tax reform. He sat down with Tip O'Neill right. and, and got everyone to do it. To be durable, it must be buy-in. To be durable also, I think, the George W. Bush lesson, um, don't enact things that only last 10 years for budget gimmicks. Right. gimmicks. Uh, that's also my worry about reducing taxes rather than eliminating them. Uh, if you reduce a corporate tax rate, what you say is, and by the way, we'll keep negotiating this forever. Uh, if you say the estate tax is gone for only 10 years and then it comes back, what y it's not absolutely gone forever. Uh, deductions. Uh, it's nice to put a cap on deductions, but that means each one is still there and each lobby is still there to say, wait, but ours is so important, it has to be exempt from the cap. Mm -hmm. uh, if you want to, permanence comes from bipartisan buy-in, but also permanence is permanence. A, a, if the tax, corporate tax is still on the book with a 1% rate, you know all the lobbyists, all the special deductions, we're all there, we're all waiting to bring it back again. Ta taxes are like vampires. You have to drive a stake through their heart and get rid of them. Uh, so the institutional permanent tax reform, I think, is, is going to be the key to actually getting anything done. Let's fast forward to two or three, uh, three weeks from now and supposing that President Trump makes good on his word and indeed there is a tax reform plan for you to actually look at. And let's have the grumpy economist waking up in the morning with his mug of coffee and he logs onto his computer and there it is and he downloads a PDF and he reads it. What are you looking for in the way of red flags? In other words, what we've talked a lot about what should be in this bill, but what, do you be, what will you be looking for in the way of red flags, John, things would, that would warn you that maybe they're off the track here? Um, well, again, I want to, you said Trump. <laughs> Don't forget. I think 90% I think of the work here is going to come from Paul Ryan, right. uh, who is clever enough to um, stay behind the scenes. <laughs> right. um, it's not going to be my perfect tax. Uh, I think uh, both uh, the things we have talked about are all huge improvements. Mm -hmm. um, the thing I'm hoping most for is, is, is simplification, uh, move towards a consumption taxation rather than uh, taxation of investment income. Mm -hmm. uh, that's one thing that is, is the taxing of income is, is behind so much of the problems in our, in our tax code. Uh, so moving towards consumption taxation I think is going to be important. Uh, so low rates, broad-based simplicity, and and cleaning out the vast swamp of uh, deductions and credits and so forth. I mean, our our tax code is tens of thousands of pages long. The the interpretations are hundreds of thousands of pages long. The judicial interpretations are millions of pages long. Uh, that's the real swamp in America today. You mentioned uh, the Bush uh, tax plan in the, uh, 2001 where they put 2010 out as the marker for, we'll have to go back and revisit this. What other don'ts do you not want to see in a tax reform plan besides having a finite expiration date on these things? I'm, I'm sorry for the brief silence. Um, let, let's just, th there are so many, I don't know where to start, and uh, my expectations are pretty low. Uh, so let's let's be grateful what we get for. John, it's the beauty uh, of a podcast. We'll we have time. <laughs> <laughs> right. 
but you said it. So you said the first the first you did mention that the idea of, of putting a five ten year window on tax cuts is your opinion a bad idea. It just it creates creates I guess an obvious political problem of who's going to be in power the next ten years from now and what the hell deal with it. But are there any other just really glaring well, problems you see? I'm looking for uh, low rates, mm -hmm. broad base, a, as as few deductions, credits, exemptions, uh, special deals, as little subsidizing of economic activity through the tax code as, as I can get. Um, and uh, and I, I, my ideal is zero corporate tax. Um, people have to remember corporations never pay any tax. All corporate taxes comes from higher prices, uh, lower wages, possibly lower profits, but in the end it's always higher taxes and, and lower wages. So the corporate tax is a fiction and it is the cause of so much chicanery in the, in the tax code. Uh, so as um, lowering is good, eliminating would be better. Uh, I'd love to see sort of statements of, of, of principle. Um, one of the things we, we miss in the tax code, yes, there's idea, everyone recognizes there's an ideal and there's politically possible. It would be lovely if occasionally we heard more often out of Washington, here's the ideal we're going to. Here's what, what we did was politically possible. I'm not going to get that. Right. <laughs> Uh, but let, let's let's wait and see what they come up with and and score it uh, according to what we get. And and small improvements are going to make a big difference. You, you've seen how um, uh, business and the stock market are 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 quite enthusiastic about even the small changes that they see coming. Uh, that's important. Okay, let's uh, talk about one topic which uh, you blogged uh, on this week. Um, Secretary Schultz mm -hmm. and Secretary James Baker and a handful of prominent Republicans, either past cabinet secretaries, presidential advisors, economists, they have an idea, and it is being called a carbon tax. And if you go to the Hoover website, you'll see the op-ed that George Schultz co-authored in the Wall Street Journal. And if they go to your Grumpy Economist blog, they'll have your thoughts on this. You like this idea. Yeah, I think it's a great idea. Um, uh, explain explain <laughs> to me why you think this is a good idea. Now, I, I don't want to take a stand on, let's not start arguing about uh, climate change. Right. I think, so let's be completely agnostic, at least for this discussion. I think this is a deal that both sides of the climate debate should, in, should, uh, should take because it gets what everybody wants. Well, let's back up a second, John. Why don't you just explain briefly what exactly George Schultz and company want to do? Yeah. Uh, so the idea is, and it's, this has been around quite a while, um, pollution taxes work quite well in many other circumstances. Mm -hmm. Um, the idea is that uh, in order to control carbon emissions, rather than the uh, Department of Energy Environmental Protection Agency telling everybody what to do, uh, rather than the government of California putting in high-speed trains, rather than subsidies for windmills and solar panels and electric cars and standards on telling you what your washing machine has to do, uh, there will be a tax on carbon. Um, basically, anything that emits carbon pays a tax. Mm -hmm. Uh, and then um, you are free to choose, uh, uh, you know, what is really important to you to emit carbon and where is something less important to you. Uh, businesses are free to choose technologies that deliver less carbon in the most efficient ways. Mm -hmm. uh, we don't do, um, we, we place a uniform value then on, on carbon emissions. And there's a whole lot of the less of this running to Washington for subsidies for my industry. So. What do you get out of the exchange? This is the deal. The deal is yes, carbon tax in exchange for no regulations. Right. Um, environmentalists get a lot less carbon. 
And in fact, there is beginning to be support for a carbon tax for this deal mm -hmm. from environmental groups, from the environmental groups that really are concerned about carbon and recognize that the current approach is mostly symbolic, largely corrupt, right. and is never going to cut down the amount of carbon they need. A carbon tax is much more effective. It's a great deal for, um, on the other side, climate skeptics. Um, I think both sides are holding out for maximalism, but climate skeptics, uh, given that we are going to do things about carbon, you will get much more economic growth out of a, paying a straightforward carbon tax, even if you think it's a silly tax that isn't needed. You're going to get so much more economic growth out of a carbon tax if it can come with getting rid of all these regulations. So it's a win-win on both sides. We will get, for sure, less carbon and more growth if we do it. The, uh, the political, now, now America is, is getting more polarized, our, pol our, our politics are getting more polarized. Most on the, on the environmental left want it all. They want the carbon tax and the regulations mm -hmm. because they don't trust the tax. Uh, politically, by holding out for everything, they will get nothing. Uh, you know, in the US, we're, we're into many years of climate skeptics in charge of the country. The, much of Western Europe is, heading in sort of a Trumpian direction, if they hold out for everything, until a progressive revolution comes involving president, house, senate, they will get nothing. Uh, people who, uh, the climate, I don't want to, people who don't think this is a big problem uh, are, are not for it because they say, oh, we don't need this carbon tax. They're holding out for, we'll get rid of all the regulations because it's stupid. They will get nothing as well because there are going the the power of the um, environmental and and let, let me whether it's right or wrong face it there's going to be a lot of this intrusive energy regulation so they will get by holding out for everything they will get nothing so it's one of these classic deals if you're willing to give up your extreme position you will in fact get both more economic growth and less carbon uh, out of this deal so that's why I think it's a lovely deal. And we call it a fee and not a tax and maintain its intellectual credibility. Yeah, no, there are some marketing choices here. Right. And again, we have to, uh, as economists, um, it's good for us to uh, not play politician too much, not play marketer too much, but recognize the realities and recognize where proposals are bending to marketing and economic reality. When you say tax, many people say, ah, tax is bad. Um, and this is, in fact, what's led to the confusion I start with over tax rate versus taxes. Economics really is not against taxes. It's against tax rates. Mm -hmm. uh, so if we could call it a carbon fee, that might be a good way to sell it to people. Mm -hmm. uh, there's, there's the question of do you want to call it a tax? Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, when, you, um, when you dispose of your used motor oil at the gas station, you pay to a, what is it, $2 recycling fee. That's a tax, too. Correct. So maybe, but I want to leave it to, I think we should all uh, leave it to politicians to decide how to market this thing. There's a similar element of the plan. The plan uh, said that the tax, uh, the, the plan that um, Secretary Schultz and, and company put out, there's a big question, what do you do with the money <laughs> that is raised by the carbon tax? Right. Uh, one of the authors of the plan, Greg Mankiw, has long said, what you do with the money is uh, you reduce other tax rates. You use this to fund the federal government. And Greg is exactly right as a matter of economics. Um, most taxes are bad because they distort economic activity. You get less, if you tax labor, you get less of a good thing, labor. Right. 
Um, if you tax carbon, you get less of a bad thing, carbon. So in fact, taxing carbon to raise revenue for the government is a triple whammy. <laughs> um, now, why don't we want to do that? Well, um, some people uh, w would like to not have tax revenue because they view that as a way of controlling spending. Um, well, that's a political thing that, you know, maybe we should just control spending and raise the tax revenue in the least efficient way. And uh, I think the, the proposal now, to, to the, the proposal was to, to use this, the carbon tax, to give uh, a check to every American. And that's perhaps brilliant politically, because now we have a constituency to keep the carbon tax. We have a constituency that wants the tax rate higher, <laughs> not lower, to keep it broad-based. Of course, the problem with a tax, anything that's in the tax code is instantly going to be under attack. Oh, the family farmers can't pay the carbon tax. Oh, poor people who need to drive to work can't pay the carbon tax. You can see it coming. So a political constituency to fight against exemptions and to keep the rate up is a brilliant uh, thing to do. Uh, on the other hand, you're giving up the advantages. If somebody's got to pay the income tax, so we're going to keep distorting income taxes. Re really, it's the same as we're going to have an income tax and give every American $2,000, and we're just kind of shuffling where the money comes from. Okay. So I think it would be best to be clear. I I'm trying to be clear as an economist. Economically, the best thing would be to use carbon tax proceeds to offset other taxes. Uh, this is a clever political idea, and... Uh, you know, we've seen the converse of it. In the early parts of the 20th century, uh, the U.S. had a tariff, which is a bad thing. And the tariff was used to fund Civil War pensions. And there was a strong political constituency to keep the tariff high. And it worked brilliantly. We had high tariffs for a long time. Right. So that's a political uh, thing. It's, it's, it's an intelligent political thing. But I think we ought to recognize maybe there are other ways to keep the pol politics uh, in favor of a carbon tax, not just giving every American $2,000 so long as they vote for carbon taxes. So, John, having spent a rather painful 2016 making one bad prediction after another and telling myself that 2017, as best as I can make it, a prediction-free zone, I'm not going to put you on the spot and ask what's going to happen here, but I would like to know your thoughts on what you think the rather thornier um, points of contention will be as this makes its way through the House than the Senate toward the White House. Is it, is it going to be the rates? Is it going to be the difference of tariff versus border adjustment tax? What, what do you see as possible hang-ups here? Um, well, I think we can easily make political predictions that, the, um, uh, that, that there's going to be a huge partisan fight. Um, most of it will be hot air and demonization as opposed to right. um, uh, uh, clarity. Uh, there's still, I mean, already we saw this in the campaign. Uh, the big question, is this a tax cut for the rich? Right. Uh, I know that's going to be uh, the um, rallying cry on the left, whether it's true or not. Is um, it, uh, it going to benefit Wall Street? Is it going to make corporations richer, which will be Elizabeth Warren's side Yeah, and which is the, the sad part of all public debate on the tax code is that what we do with any tax proposal is instantly microanalyze who's going to pay $50 more and who's going to pay $50 less. Mm -hmm. And nobody analyzes... <laughs> Where are the incentives better for doing, for making the economy grow? Mm -hmm. uh, so we can easily forecast lots of this microanalysis. Uh, anybody whose deductions, special deals, credits, subsidies are threatened will be out there crying uh, holy murder. And uh, good luck to the, the sane uh, and, and thoughtful politicians at the core of this, uh, like Paul Ryan, who have, to, uh, who have to usher a sensible tax code in in the face of what is sure to be uh, a huge fight. On the other hand, you know, 
there, there's perhaps the administration can keep them distracted with um, something else to keep everybody up in an uproar while quietly sensible tax reform takes place. That's a prediction that probably will come true. Final question, John Cochran. In terms of passing tax reform and then the idea of the proof is in the pudding, as an economist, what standard do you use? What is the pudding to you? Do you look at growth a year after tax reform is passed, two years, five years? What, what is your standard for this actually working or not? That's a hard question. And yet, so economists are terrible at predictions <laughs> because predictions are largely about what will politicians do. And economists are bad at predictions for the same reason that, that weather forecasters are bad at telling you, will it rain six months from now? There's just a lot of randomness. Right. What economists are good at is telling you, if you change X and leave everything else alone, what will happen to Y? But that's not very useful in predictions. And that's the problem with measurement. Um, I hope that a, a good tax reform that lowers rates, broadens the base, and removes lots of the complexity and gets creative Americans back to work making better products and innovating businesses, along with regulatory reform, gets the economy going again. But uh, even if tax reform is great on the margin, so much else can happen. Uh, we are waiting for the next bad shock. Mm -hmm. So even if tax reform is by itself a great thing, who knows? Uh, if China blows up uh, and we have a new financial crisis, the economy could turn south even if tax reform were a great thing. Uh, so I hope that uh, I'm going to waffle on this one and say I hope that my colleagues studying this will see the marginal benefits of tax reform uh, no matter what happens. Uh, but, uh, you know, like George Washington's doctors as he, were dying, as he was dying bled him and said, uh, you know, what wonderful things we're doing. And he rallies a little bit and they say, look, the bleeding helped. And this is the problem with economics. Um, you know, did the stimulus help or hurt? Well, the Democrats say, look, but for the stimulus, everything would have been great. Right. Uh, uh, Republicans said, yeah, it would have been fine anyway. Uh, it's very hard to tell. Uh, we're still arguing about what the causes of the Great Depression were. Uh, so it'll be, so there isn't, don't look for a magic bullet. I hope America grows, and I think tax reform will be something that contributes to that growth. Okay, well, John Cochran, once the bill is introduced, it makes its way through Congress. Hopefully you'll come back in studio and we can analyze it a little bit more. Yes, that'll be great. We'll, we'll know more about what's inside it then, too. Terrific. I look forward to it. You've been listening to Area 45, a Hoover Institution podcast on the policy choices confronting America's 45th presidency. You can find the Hoover Institution online at www.hoover.org. While you're there, I encourage you to sign up for the Hoover Daily Report, which sends you the best work of Hoover fellows, including John Cochran, straight to your inbox. Speaking of John Cochran, you can find the Grumpy Economist blog at www.johncochran.blogspot.com. For the Hoover Institution, this is Bill Whalen. We'll be back soon with another edition of Area 45. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. For more podcasts from the Hoover Institution, please visit hoover.org or Hoover's channels on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Stitcher. I'm Chris Dower for the Hoover Institution. Thanks for listening.